finding that in the moon there is a provision of light and heat, also in appearance a soil proper for habitation fully as good as ours, if not perhaps better, who can say that it is not extremely probable, nay, beyond doubt, that there must be inhabitants on the moon of some kind or other? Today's episode of History Obscura has been presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you and me to monetize our podcasts. Providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so we always know how much we're going to get when we include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. Tell them History Obscura sent you. Hello and welcome to the History Obscura podcast. It's March 20th, and we're all under the illumination of the very same waxing crescent moon. The moon is close to the sun right now, but mostly dark, except for a little sliver peeking down at you like a newly hatched night monster in the sky. It's a wonderful time to stargaze. Oh, that brings me to tonight's story. Hmm, where to begin? Ah, yes. Once upon a time, ancient cultures looked up at the stars thousands and tens of thousands of years ago, wondering about their place in the universe. What were the glowing spots in the black cover of night? Just how far away was the moon? Would the sun come back tomorrow? if they failed to provide a sacrifice to the gods? These and other questions followed humanity through the millennia until, finally, relative economic stability allowed for a number of people to examine their world more closely. Slowly, knowledge and understanding accumulated generation by generation until the conditions were ideal for a revolution in thinking, experimentation, worldview, and natural philosophy. It was the scientific revolution, the time period when many theologians had more and better tools to measure and make sense of the things around them. With careful measurements, precise data collection, and an unwavering sense of curiosity, humankind stepped into the future. William Herschel was one of those humans. Born in 1738, he was a self-educated genius, the progeny of a German musical family whose Hanoverian father sent him to Britain after the Seven Years' War with France. There, Herschel proved a quick study in the English language 
and he established himself as an organist, violinist, oboist, and harpsichordist in the wealthy Somerset spa town of Bath. Carolyn, his sister, and William were born in Hanover in the mid-18th century, Carolyn suffering from typhoid as a young child and probably because of that illness, only grew to an adult height of just over four feet. William was extensively trained in the musical arts, as his father was a professional musician with the Hanover Military Band. The sibling's mother was opposed to sending her daughter to attend school, However, Carolyn learned how to sing later in life when William brought her to England to reside with him. The brother and sister practiced and performed together on multiple occasions throughout their early adulthood, Carolyn singing and William accompanying her on oboe, violin, harpsichord, or organ. Though William first found employment as a music teacher in England, he was also an active amateur astronomer. The siblings spent their adulthood working together as mathematicians and astronomers, Carolyn having learned these subjects from her brother. Over the course of several decades, William also taught himself many of the more complicated aspects of modern astronomy by way of reading the works of Newton and Robert Smith. Caroline surveyed the stars just as well, compiling a star catalog of all known celestial bodies, including those that had been discovered by herself and her brother. On March 13, 1781, William recorded in his journal, in the quartile near Taurus, either a nebulous star or perhaps a comet, on the 17th, he noted, I looked for the comet or nebulous star and found that it is a comet, for it has changed place. He presented this discovery to the Royal Society of London and continued to assert that he had found a comet, but also implicitly compared it to a planet. He recorded the following. The power I had on when I first saw the comet was 227. From experience, I know that the diameters of the fixed stars are not proportionally magnified with higher powers as planets are. Therefore, I now put the powers at 460 and 932 and found that the diameter of the comet increased in proportion to the power, as it ought to be on the supposition of its not being a fixed star. Well, the diameters of the stars to which I compared it were not increased in the same ratio. Moreover, the comet being magnified much beyond what its light would admit of, appeared hazy and ill-defined with these great powers, while the stars preserved that luster and distinctness the sequel has shown that my surmises were well-founded, this proving to be the comet we have lately observed. His peers at the Royal Society were confused. A comet is normally very bright and 
noticed because it has come close to the sun and therefore is easier to see. If this were true in the case of William's discovery, the body should be moving a lot faster and have a tail, which this new discovery did not. It also appeared to have a circular orbit. It must, therefore, be a planet. The planet in question has an atmosphere similar to Jupiter's and Saturn's in its primary composition of hydrogen and helium, but it contains more ices, such as water, ammonia, and methane, along with traces of other hydrocarbons. It has the coldest planetary atmosphere in the solar system with a minimum temperature of negative 224 degrees Celsius. It has a complex, layered cloud structure, with water thought to make up the lowest clouds and methane the uppermost. Its interior is mainly composed of ice and rock. Herschel himself was forced to admit, at length, that this was indeed a planetary discovery. And as the new planet's discoverer, the honors came thick and fast, membership to the Royal Society, receipt of the prestigious Copley Medal, and a royal pension, plus funding to build the biggest telescope in the world. Consensus on what to call Herschel's discovery was not reached until nearly 70 years after the planet's discovery. During the original discussions, Herschel was asked to do the astronomical world the favor of giving a name to his planet, which is entirely his own, because we are so much obliged to you for this discovery. He decided to name the object Georgium Sidus, for George's star, or the Georgian planet, in honor of his new patron, King George III. He explained this decision in a letter to Joseph Banks. In the fabulous ages of ancient times, the appellations of Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn were given to the planets, as being the names of their principal heroes and divinities. In the present more philosophical era, it would be hardly allowable to have recourse to the same method and call it Juno, Pallas, Apollo, or Minerva, for a name to our new heavenly body. The first consideration of any particular event, or remarkable incident, seems to be its chronology. If in any future age it should be asked when this last found planet was discovered, it would be very satisfactory to say, in the reign of King George III. Herschel's proposed planet name was not popular outside of Britain, and alternatives were soon proposed. The astronomer Jerome Lalande proposed that it be named Herschel in honor of its discoverer. The Swedish astronomer Eric Prosperin proposed the name Neptune, which was supported by other astronomers who liked the idea to commemorate the victories of the British Royal Naval Fleet in the course of the American Revolutionary War 
by calling the new planet even Neptune George III, or Neptune Great Britain. Perhaps unsurprisingly, in the final years of the 18th century, royal references were poorly received by the United States as well as by Britain's nemesis, France, and other countries who were not fond of the British crown. Astronomers also scoffed at the indication that the Georgian star, in any shape or form, was a star. To top it off, naming the world after a king was totally at odds with the classical naming tradition for planets. However, in recognition of his achievement, King George III himself gave Herschel an annual stipend of 200 pounds on the condition that he moved to Windsor so that the royal family could look through his telescopes. So, although popular in Britain, the international community was less than impressed with George's Sidus. German astronomer Johann Ellert Bode proposed a different name in 1783. It also came from Greek mythology and pleased the international community well enough that it finally stuck. So, after the god Calus, mythological father of Saturn, Herschel's star was called Uranus. Thank you for listening. Please consider giving us a cup of tea via the link in the show notes or going to buymeacoffee.com and searching for History Obscura. Good night! Good night.